This is the Santita Jackson Show. Good morning. It's Andrea Darlis in for my friend Santita Jackson today. Happy December 1st for you. Rabbit, rabbit, rabbit for those who say that on the first day of the month. And boy, what a change. A 30-degree temperature drop, 58 on Tuesday to the upper 20s. It was 18 on my uh, car thermometer on the way in. We're chilly, but we're together, and uh, we're healthy. And again, beginning a beautiful holiday week or a holiday month, December 1st. I'm so happy to be with you today. We have a great show for you. Reverend Vicki Johnson from St. Thomas Lutheran Church in Chicago is going to be with us in just a minute. We welcome your phone calls, as always, 773 773- 763-9278 here on WCPT. There's a lot to talk about today, aside from the uh, cold weather. A couple of uh, headlines for you before we get to Reverend Johnson. A very sad and scary incident in Buffalo Grove last night. Five people found dead in a home in Buffalo Grove. It's being described as a murder-suicide. This was in the 2800 block of Acacia Terrace. Officers found five people dead inside, including, we are told, two children. So police are investigating in Buffalo Grove this morning. Big, big news. We're in the middle of our uh, our special session in Springfield. The Illinois General Assembly is expected to make changes to the Safety Act today. The law eliminates cash bail. takes effect January 1st. Lawmakers are weighing out some proposed changes, and the bill's sponsor is confident it will pass through the Senate and the House today. Senator Sim said that the original intent of the Safety Act was to reform Illinois' criminal justice system, uh, but we all know the legislation has become very contentious. We've seen all these ads for and against it, especially when it comes to eliminating cash bail starting in the new year. Uh, There's a 300-page amendment that's going to make some clarifications to the Safety Act. That is what's going through the legislature right now in this special session, which is supposed to end tonight at midnight. I don't see it uh, going over. I think this is going to, uh, these these changes are going to pass. Critics to the bill saying that ending cash bail is going to basically mean a revolving door for jail statewide. But again, advocates say judges will have this discretion. So don't listen to everything that you're hearing and these scare tactics. Judges are going to have discretion over who gets who gets bail and who does not. Uh, some other tweaks to the law will also include clarification on how police can arrest and deal with trespassers. That's a lot of the language that they're trying to work through right now. Uh, the governor's office was involved in many of the changes, and lawmakers are sure that the bill will wind up on the governor's desk for his signature. And uh, another top story for you today, a very sad story in the music world. Uh, Henry Edwards, and uh, who's producing our show today, and I were talking about this very sad story. Christine McVie of Fleetwood Mac, dead at the age of 79. Not only was she just an amazing part of Fleetwood Mac, she wrote most of their songs. Um, so anything, anything you hear, you know, Hold Me, all of Fleetwood Mac's major, major hits were written by Christine McVie. One of the nicest, by all accounts, people, uh, an amazing musician, amazing singer, amazing songwriter, but just a wonderful person. Uh, Stevie Nicks paid tribute to her on tr- on uh, Twitter yesterday saying, I've lost my best friend of the whole world. Uh, and Christine McVie had a short illness. She was surrounded by family and friends when she died on Wednesday. Uh, Stevie Nicks said that she didn't even know she was sick. 
Uh, she kept the illness from her family and friends didn't, or from her from her friends didn't want them to worry about her. Apparently, uh, so that just just shows what an amazing woman she was. Our thoughts and prayers are with Christine McVie's family. A huge loss for the entertainment and the music world. Let's move on to some good news. My friend Reverend Vicki Johnson, St. Thomas Lutheran Church in Chicago, always brings a smile to my face. Good morning, Reverend Johnson. Well, good morning. Good morning to all of the morning stars and good morning to all of the friends of the Santita Jackson Show. There is good news. Have you ever been in a conversation and while they were talking, you were way ahead of them, focused on what your response would be, not giving them your full attention? Have you ever been in a, at an event, a concert, and you spent much time videoing and taking pictures, it, missing out on some of the activities? Many of us are living every place else, but not in the moment. Living in the moment allows you to freely experience the world around you with minimal distractions. It allows you to give people your undivided attention as they speak without being anxious to make your point. When you do this, you might find there's no need to say anything at all. Living in the moment lets you see and feel things that might otherwise go unnoticed. Well, our lives are so full now that our minds are always someplace else. Take some time today to calm your mind and live in the moment by engaging in a creative activity like drawing, dancing, or even doodling. It is believed that when we stimulate stimulate the right brain, which is our creative side, it can calm the left brain that is always thinking. Going for a walk or if your mobility is limited, spend time looking out of your window at the beauty of nature in this moment and performing acts of kindness for others and paying attention to their responses, breathing and paying attention to your life-giving breath can be calming and make you present in the moment. As we live in the moment today, today is World Eight Day, the day set aside to honor those whose moments are no more due to AIDS. We remember them and thank God for the moments of their lives. Take a moment today to share some love with those impacted by HIV and AIDS. Take advantage of the moments of your life. If you will do this, and I believe that you will, then to me, that's good news. Thank you, Reverend Johnson. You have a wonderful day. Thank you, and you do likewise. Have a great show. Thank you so much. That's the Reverend Vicki Johnson, St. Thomas Lutheran Church in Chicago, a dear friend of the show and of Santita's, always keeping us in her thoughts and her prayers and always spreading good news. We all need some good news on this day, and I'm, I'm very glad that Reverend Johnson mentioned today is World AIDS Day. We've been marking this uh, for more than 30 years now, 35, I believe. On World AIDS Day, those impacted by the disease are hoping that others recognize their fight, and I'm 
I'm glad that she brought it up because this is not um, a disease that we talk about all the time, and, and we need, we need to keep remembering those who've uh, lost their lives to this terrible, terrible disease. Uh, the treatments have gotten better. Much progress has been made. Today is a day to remember those who died due to AIDS-related complications and an opportunity to uplift the lives of people with and affected by HIV and AIDS. Um, again, so please remember that. HIV.gov says about 1.2 million Americans have HIV, but listen to this, at 13% don't know it and need testing. That's according to HIV.gov. Um, on the national level, President Biden's administration did reestablish the White House Office of National AIDS Policy on World AIDS Day last year, one year ago. President Biden made a very bold promise. He said he wants to end the HIV epidemic in the United States by the year 2030. That is the goal. President Biden again saying that he wants to end the HIV epidemic, wipe it out by 2030. And back here at home, many long-term survivors say that will only happen if we continue to end the stigma that is tied with HIV and AIDS. In 2019, it was estimated that almost 35,000 new HIV infections occurred in the United States. The highest rates of new diagnoses continue to occur in the South. We're so happy you're with us today. It's Andrea Darlis in for Santita Jackson for today. A couple of other news stories making the rounds and making news today. House Democrats have chose caucus chair Hakeem Jeffries of New York to succeed Nancy Pelosi as leader of the Democrats in the chamber next year. It's an historic move. It will make Hakeem Jeffries the first black person to lead one of the two major parties in either chamber of Congress. It is a wonderful accolade. House Democrats met behind closed doors Wednesday morning on Capitol Hill to make their decision. Remember, a Jeffries ran unopposed as leader with Massachusetts Representative Catherine Clark, the current assistant speaker, running as whip. So Catherine Clark will be the whip. California Representative Peter Aguilar, previously vice chair of the caucus, is expected to win the spot to lead the House Democratic Caucus. Major, major news in Washington. Uh, Republicans do have the majority in Congress in the next Congress, remember. So Jeffries, Clark, and Aguilar, they'll lead in, an, in a Democratic minority. This is the first in two terms. Jeffries is 52, will represent a generational change from the current House Democrat House Democratic leaders who are three decades older than him. He became the chairman of the Democratic Caucus in 2019, making him the youngest member serving in leadership. His rise in leadership comes after Nancy Pelosi, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer, and House Majority Whip Jim Clyburn announced that they would be stepping down from their current leadership position. So we have a big, big shift in age here. I think it's fantastic. We're bringing in some young people, some young leaders uh, some new young Democrats to lead. Clyburn is expected to become the assistant leader in the new Congress. So Jim Clyburn will still be a part of the new Congress. He's going to be the assistant leader. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was designated as Speaker Emerita. Now, this was a unanimous vote by the House Democratic Steering and Policy Committee, and that was just announced on Tuesday night. Nancy Pelosi gave the thumbs up, giving her blessing to the new trio of leaders, expecting to succeed them in a statement when she announced that she would step down and return to being a rank-and-file member in the new Congress. And hats off, hands up, and pats on the back to Nancy Pelosi. She is just amazing. She's amazing in what she's done. She's done through her life, what she's accomplished, a strong female presence, 
Um, and I, her husband is still recovering from that violent and vicious attack uh, in their home. So our, we're always thinking of Paul Pelosi and Nancy Pelosi. But really, hats off to her. She made a wonderful, beautiful statement on the floor. She said, a new day is dawning, and I'm confident that these new leaders will capably lead our caucus and the Congress. Please give us a call. Weigh in. 773-763-9278. I think the new Democratic leadership is taking shape. I think they're going to do a wonderful job. I want to know what your thoughts are on all of this. You're always welcome to give us a call. 773-763-WCPT. That's 9278. Or give us a text. And we're here all morning until 8 o'clock. Now, for months, Democratic lawmakers have kind of said that Nancy Pelosi's potential exit from Congress could pave the way for Jeffries. You know, he's been a leader to watch for a long time. Uh, Jeffries releasing a statement saying that he will lead an effort that centers communication strategy around the messaging principle that values unite. And how about that? We haven't heard that in a long time from uh, from anyone in these uh, in the in the Congress uniting values. He said issues divide, which is true. He also praised the past leadership, but said more must be done to combat uh, to combat inflation, defend our democracy, secure reproductive freedom, welcome new Americans, promote equal protection under the law, and improve public safety throughout this country. So again, a major change in leadership, but uh, we're going to have a lot more to say on this in the days and the uh, weeks ahead. Another talking about values uniting. I just want to bring it back home for a moment here. Alexei Janulius. Alexei Janulius is going to be our new Secretary of State when he's sworn in. He won uh, over Dan Brady in an election. And Alexei Janulius had an opportunity to form a transition team, as do most elected officials. And this is just a a wonderful sign of trying to work together. Alexei Janulius appointed Dan Brady to his transition team, the the man that he beat in the election. And Brady said he's honored and he's humbled. I think we need so much more of that. It's almost as though I wish there could be some sort of a, not a rule, but maybe a suggestion that the person that you defeat is a part of your transition team to keep both sides involved in the process. But <clears throat> again, reaching along party lines, Alexei Janulius there. Um, really a, a great move. I also want to talk about a story that is just baffling to me. The story about these University of, University of Idaho students who were killed. Uh, they're still, this is in Moscow, Idaho. It was a college town. Four students found dead. They were stabbed to death in their sleep. Um, there's There's been so many different theories. You know, initially police came out of the gate saying that, well, the community, the community doesn't need to worry. It was a targeted atta- attack. And we're learning that while it might have been a targeted attack, um, the community does need to worry because they do not have this suspect yet. It, it's just absolutely baffling to me that there are just there's no suspects at this point. Um, Detectives have come right out and say they don't know if the resident or any occupants were specifically targeted now, but they're still investigating. You have four young people here, uh, Ethan Chapin, Kaylee Gonclaves, Zaina Carnoodle, and Madison Mogan were found stabbed to death in this off-campus home. Uh, This town hasn't had a single murder since 2015. And just two days after their discovery, this is what I was saying, Moscow police said that they don't believe there's a threat for the community. However, they did say they were asking the public to stay vigilant less than 24 hours later for their assistance with information. I really hope this case does not go cold and doesn't turn into what happened in Delphi, Indiana. Uh, At least 150 interviews have been conducted. More than 1,000 tips from the public have been received no suspect has been identified. The murder weapon has not been found. 
they have ruled out the possibility that more than one person may have been involved in the stabbings. And something interesting I found, too, is that they held a vigil on the campus of University of Idaho last night, and the police were hoping that whoever did this would show up, as is so often the case, sadly, in murders and incidents like this. Uh, No word on any suspect showing up. Uh, I think we would have probably heard by now, but they, again, have not ruled out the possibility that more than one person has been involved. They're telling students on campus to stay vigilant. The community gathered at their activity center known as the Kibbe Dome to honor the lives of the four students on Wednesday. So we'll be keeping an eye on that story as well. Another story I wanted to tell you about, the House has moved to head off a looming nationwide rail strike that uh, could have happened Wednesday. The Congress passed a bill that would bind companies and workers to a proposed settlement that they reached in September, but it was rejected by about 12 of the unions that were involved. The measure did pass by a vote of 290 to 137, and it now heads to the Senate. If it's approved, it will be quickly signed by President Biden, who in fact requested this action. On Monday, the president asked Congress to intervene and avoid this rail stoppage that could strike a devastating blow to the nation's economy. This would have disrupted the transportation of basically everything that we need, fuel, food, other critical goods. But a lot of the business groups, including our United States Chamber of Commerce and the Farm Bureau, the uh, American Farm Bureau Federation said that if they stop rail service, this could cause about $2 billion a day to the economy. So now what happens is the bill imposes a compromise labor agreement. It was brokered by the Biden administration. It was voted down by four of the 12 unions, and they represent about 100,000 employees at large freight rail carriers. The union said that they would strike if an agreement wasn't reached before next week. December 9th was the original deadline. But lawmakers from both parties said that they they did have some reservations about overriding those negotiations, basically stepping in. Uh, so an intervention was particularly difficult for the Democratic lawmakers because they wanted to align themselves with the labor unions. Uh, that criticized Biden's move to intervene in the contract dispute and block that strike. Uh, Nancy Pelosi did weigh in yesterday before the uh, vote that I was just telling you about with uh, with, with Jeffries. Uh, Nancy Pelosi responded to that concern by adding a second vote that would add seven days of paid sick leave a year for the rail workers that would be covered under the agreement. So again, they will get more sick pay and sick leave. However, this is only going to take effect if the Senate goes along and passes both measures. So for this to happen, both bills do have to pass. Uh, the call for more paid sick leave was a major sticking point In those talks, the railroads say that the unions have agreed negotiations over the decades to give up the sick pay in favor of higher wages and stronger short term disability benefits. Uh, But the head of the Association of American Railroads said that the railroads would consider adding paid sick time in the future. But that change should wait for a new round of talks instead of now being added. And this is the end. Wow, this has been going on for three years. So this is nearing the end of three years of contract talks. Now, the unions say that the railroads can easily afford to, to, to add paid sick time. And this is at a time when they're recording record profits, which is very good. That's what we want right now. Several of the big railroads involved in these contract talks say that more than $1 billion in profit 
have occurred in the uh, third quarter. So Republicans say they also are going to support this measure to block the strike, but they did criticize the Biden administration for turning to Congress to step in to fix this mess. I think the president did the right thing. You have to turn to the Congress to handle situations like this. Uh, Nancy Pelosi was also criticized, but you, you, you need more. If they want more paid sick time, give them more paid sick time. And Pelosi's positioning the Democrats and the Biden administrations uh, is what they are, defenders of the unions and saying that the uh, rail companies have continued to slash jobs, especially post-pandemic, um, all at a time while they're increasing worker hours and trying to cut corners on safety. She said Congress had to intervene, and I think they absolutely did. Now, the compromise agreement, again, that was supported by the railroads and a majority of the unions will give them 24 percent pay hikes, $5,000 in retroactive bonuses. Um, and this goes back to 2020, as I, as I said, because this has been going on for almost three years now, and along with one paid leave day. This is a big raise, yep, but it's the biggest they've gotten in more than four decades. So it's about time. This is a culmination. It might sound high, but it's a culmination of 40 years of saying we need higher wages which they absolutely do. And workers are going to have to pay a larger share of their health insurance costs. But premiums are going to be capped at 15 percent. Again, the Biden administration issued a statement supporting Congress and passing a bill that implements the most recent tentative agreement, saying that it's going to provide improved health care benefits and a historic pay raise. So watch for that to happen as well. As I said, it is cold out there and it's uh, only going to get colder. Give you a weather forecast for today for the Chicagoland and the Minneapolis areas. Uh, Right now, (laughs) you want to hear this? 18 degrees out right now. Uh, We're going to go up to a high of 31 today. There is some some relief in sight. Temperatures are supposed to peak back up into the 40s for tomorrow. I think this is how we're going to stay now, folks. Uh, 28 this morning, this afternoon, 35, and for the next couple of days. With the wind chill, I know some of you asking, are asking about the wind chill. It already feels as though it's 8 degrees right now with that wind chill. Winds are only at 9 miles an hour, but feels like 8 degrees out there. Uh, for the next couple of days, as I said, we're going to have um, a bit of a warm-up, if you want to call it that. We'll see the 40s uh, for today. And then possibly a return to the 50s sometime next week. Mm -mm, Don't see that happening. But hey, you know what? It's winter in Chicago. We're used to it. The highest we're going to get is on Sunday. We could see 50 degrees. All right. Stay with us. A lot more coming up here on the Santita Jackson Show. It's Andrea Darlis in for Santita today. So happy you're with us on Chicago's Progressive Talk WCPT. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Happy September. Wishful thinking there with that weather. Happy December 1st. It's Andrea Darlis in for my friend Santita Jackson for you today. Uh, We have a wonderful show planned for the next hour and a half as we've been talking about the top headlines of the day. The Illinois General Assembly is expected to make changes to the controversial Safety Act today. The law eliminates cash bail. It takes effect January 1st. Lawmakers are weighing out some of those proposed changes today during the special session and the, the bill sponsor says he's confident it will pass through the Senate and the House by midnight. So this is going to, all the changes are going to happen, they're going to go into effect, and this will law will go into effect on January 1st. Santita always has such a wonderful panel of attorneys on every day for you. Attorney Erin Connolly, we're so happy she can join us today. Erin, thank you so much for being here. 
Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. And good morning to all the morning stars out there. I know I haven't been speaking with you too much this week, so it's great great to connect with all of all of our listeners. It, it's always wonderful. It's always a treat. I tell Santita, it's always a treat for me to speak with you and CK and all of, uh, all of our friends here on WCPT who do such a wonderful job of breaking things down for our listeners and explaining things to us. There's so many um, fear tactics and scaremongers out there. You know, we hear a lot of these things, especially in... in in campaign advertisements and, and think the worst, but it's not always the worst. We've been talking about changes to the Safety Act, and now lawmakers are coming together to make these changes, and this is going to go into effect January 1st. What, do, what are your thoughts on this bill in general, Aaron, and how will this really change anything for us just as Illinois residents come the first of the year? Well, we saw such, um, I would I would call it fear-mongering around the Safety Act and the, the real provisions of it. And and we understand why folks are able to kind of use these scare tactics and take pieces of what is in this legislation. And, um, uh, you know, it, it's when, when your family safety is concerned, when you're talking about violent crime, when you're talking about our criminal justice system, it immediately gets people on edge. Right. And we we see uh, our communities in Chicago um, that are plagued by gun violence that have serious, um, dangerous situations for residents um, every day. And we want to, you know, I think a comprehensive view of our criminal justice system needs to happen. And that is what I know uh, the sponsors of the Safety Act looked at when implementing this, particularly, as you mentioned, um, the ban on cash bail. And what, what cash bail is, it basically sets, uh, sets two uh, tracks to our justice system. It allows the wealth, anyone who is wealthy who can pay that cash, that piece of, of the fine of the bail in cash, they are immediately released, whether or not, um, in many cases, they, they have committed crimes that are, are dangerous to the public. What this act does is it leaves that choice of who is dangerous who is not, who um, can be on a monitoring device, who can maintain some level of um, freedom while they are innocent until proven guilty, right? So we're looking at those those very simple changes that don't, that take out this two system, just mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. People that are, are wealthy and people who are not. So, so that's the main main provision of the Safety Act, right? And during the midterm elections and uh, the gubernatorial race, we saw this become a, a hot-button issue uh, in many communities with these provisions being debated and oftentimes uh, conflated to include um, things that weren't necessarily true. Um, I think these changes um, are being measured and considered by our General Assembly to take out some of the potential um, blind spots, let's say, in, mm-hmm. in the legislation and, and take, take some real feedback about what communities, what um, law enforcement is saying, and create a system that's fair for everybody while also keeping the community safe, right? So I think we, we did see some pushback on, on some local municipalities uh, this week about some of these changes, saying that they will not enforce these provisions of the Safety Act. So I'm anxious to see um, how we can all come together to ensure that we're following the law and creating a system of justice where people can can fully understand what their rights and responsibilities are within the system, whether that's um, 
someone's family who uh, has been impacted by crime, knowing what their rights are within the system is important as well. So it's a, it's a it's a difficult issue, but I think Illinois has has been progressive in this to take some of the more troubling pieces of our criminal justice system, like the cash bail. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it enhances whistleblower protections. Um, it expands protections for pregnant prisoners, really basic human rights things that we should have been talking about a long time ago. So um, I, I am not an opponent of the Safety Act. I think it's a, a good piece of legislation that has been thoughtfully considered with the input of not only law enforcement, but uh, people that have been working on prisoners' rights for many years and understanding that these are people, that uh, they are human beings who also deserve a system that they can count on and understand, and that one that is fair, that provides them medical care, that provides them the life-saving insulin they need while they're in prison. We've seen several people in the last uh, couple months die in prison because they didn't have access to medication. So legislation like the Safety Act um, hopefully is a start in Illinois that we can see in other states to um, prevent some of these difficult um, and unjust practices within our criminal justice system. And I, I'm so I'm so glad you you break this down so easily to understand, Aaron, because that's exactly what it's going to do, and that's exactly why the special session is occurring right now in Illinois. It uh, the Safety Act did pass, but. Today, they're going to be voting on a 300-page amendment that's going to make clarification to the Safety Act and include many of the provisions that you were just laying out for us, Aaron. Explain a little bit to us about what it means that it's at the judge's discretion. Has it always been at the judge's discretion? And if if so, well, I guess has it, it's always been at the judge's discretion, but now um, even more so, correct? Is that how is that how I'm reading this? Right. So um, with... With the cash cash bail provision right now, you have to provide a, a, a cash payment to kind of get out of jail, um, not for free, right? And there's there's standards that are that are set within the state, within the municipalities of um, you know certain levels of uh, payments that are necessary for um, bail for certain crimes. We hear often um, in in the media, you hear someone is a flight risk and they are not eligible for bail or they are so, so violent that they um, they need to be held without bail because they are complete danger to the public. Right. So automatically, if you can pay (laughs) that level or get, get someone to pay the percentage of your bail amount, you are most of the time let out free. Uh, on your own accord, sometimes on a on a monitoring device, and um, as long as you can pay that, you you are able to be let out. And what that does is it allows for certain folks to meet that threshold, right? Um, whether you have family support or individual wealth, and the judge has to allow that if they are allowed to meet that meet that um, payment, right? Now there's more discretion to say. Um, this person uh, should have a, a monitoring device or or they should be held in um, a certain other conditions, right? Mm-hmm. So it, what it really does, it gives our judges who are um, elected and appointed um, more power and discretion to say 
um, is this person a danger to the public? So that that safeguard is still going to be there. People aren't just going to be let out um, immediately. But what it does is it creates a a more level playing field. So certain people that break the law don't don't get um, extra extra credit. Right. Right. They don't they don't come in with with a get out of jail free card with their um, with the money that they have and the wealth that they've accumulated. So um, what we see now is people sitting in jail who probably shouldn't be there in many cases because they can't raise the cash amount. It's not a uh, credit. It's not, um, you know, an IOU. There's no, there's no system in place like that. So the current system only allows for a cash payment, which is why we see advertisements for bail bondsmen and people providing these cash loans at high levels because people want their loved ones to be able to, in many cases, go back to work while they're awaiting trial or help care for their families. These are real human beings. And oftentimes we see the system is not, <laughs> is, is not always just. So we have to have to make sure that those, um, that those injustices are um, accounted for. And what I see in the general assembly is they're taking this very seriously. They've listened to feedback and these amendments will balance out some of those provisions. I'm, again, I'm so glad we're talking about this, Aaron, because this is going to go into effect. This is going to become law. And we're kind of alleviating some of these fears and concerns about all this fear monitoring. Uh, you know, because I saw those commercials, too, during the campaign. All, uh, you know, just for the record and to be clear, uh, those who are accused of murder and arson are not going to be roaming the streets. So, you know, again, that's why I said I'm very happy that we're at least discussing this and throwing this out there, that that's not what's going to happen. This is just going to make everything a more level playing field and it is up to the discretion of the judges so you know a lot of this does need to be explained because there was so much push on both sides especially on the on the right and in, in, in indicating that this was going to be such an awful thing to happen it's not nothing is really going to change except the judges are going to have a little bit more discretion now uh, as to who stays as to where what the what the bills or the bonds are set at And what it also does is it provides some measures for police accountability that I think actually will benefit our law enforcement folks and keep them safer. Right. We we see the high, unbelievably high suicide rates in our Chicago Police Department. It's terrible. Our law enforcement officials don't currently under the current law. They're not able to receive the proper training for use of force and crisis intervention, where we see a lot of mental health um, calls in not just in the city of Chicago, but throughout the state, they um, they are allowed in, in some of these in to use military style equipment, um, aggressive tactics. And that's where we see some of the the um, police accountability cases come up when there's excessive use of force, when there's violence, when those things are condoned or the training is not proper. What the Safety Act is, it does, it provides protections for, for police officers, more training, better records. Um, they are allowed to, um, the, any whistleblowers that see any sort of misconduct have additional protections so they, they feel um, that their their calls for change will, will be supported. It also helps um, prisoners and gives them gives them basic rights, basic mm-hmm. human rights. I, mm-hmm. I mentioned the the incidents where people are dying without medication. Whether or not in the United States you commit a crime, you are innocent until proven guilty, and you have a right to life during that process. Yes. You are not condemned to death simply because you've committed a crime. And 
you know, things like these and, and the Safety Act, these provisions are are really just giving our prisoners um, some human rights that, that they deserve, right? Absolutely. So we're talking about no retaliation um, while they're in custody. Um, really basic things that you would want to have if, God forbid, some someday you found yourself in custody, right? Right, right. or a family member, absolutely. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Absolutely. We're talking to attorney Aaron Connolly about the Safety Act. I want to switch gears while we have you, Aaron. Uh, talk a little bit about this student debt relief policy. What happened in the past two days is that a second federal appeals court has now rejected uh, President Biden's administration and his bid to put a hold on a ruling blocking the student debt relief policy. So this is the fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals ruling last night that it will not pause a ruling from a Texas judge striking down the policy while an appeal of the ruling plays out. So this basically basically sets the stage for the Justice Department to take the case to the Supreme Court. Is that where we're heading with this, Aaron? And if in the interim, are the uh, is the student loan policy or the student debt relief policy in effect right now, or is everything on hold? So essentially everything is on hold right now while, while the courts um, litigate this this issue that impacts millions and millions of Americans, many in uh, my millennial generation who are uh, limited to uh, what they can do for their families because of exorbitant student loan payments, the way that the system is, is structured and particularly was uh, back when I went to, to college and law school. We saw a lot of people taking out these these huge loans when um, there were these promises of uh, amazing jobs, right? Um, and then the crash happened in 2008, and so there's a big portion of folks that have balloon payments that are in that that range where it is limiting their ability to buy a house, to start families, to um, you know generate things in their local economy. So a lot of people are on edge about this. You know that it was it was a big topic before the midterm elections at the cocktail parties I was attending where people were like, well, I don't know if we can do this because student loan payments might come back on January 1st. Right. So what the court is doing is delaying that student loan forgiveness. So if you submitted an application um, on online for your student loans to be forgiven, many people received emails saying that under the current situation, uh, you would be forgiven, but we're waiting out in the courts to see how, how, how this plays out until we can fully say that your loans are forgiven. So people are, are really upset about this. This is, this is a central issue to many families' budgets. And um, what this does is unfortunately creates another level of uncertainty. And the, the markets do not like uncertainty. <laughs> um, and I'm, I'm, I'm fearful as, lo- as this continues to, to be dragged out in the court system, we're going to have some impacts on, on our economy because of it. So what the Biden administration is, has done while the courts are deciding what next steps are is they have continued to pause any repayments on student loans until June. So technically the payments will, as of now, it says that there will be no other extension, but what we may see is another extension as this as this plays out because um, people were promised, uh, you know, in the campaign that there would be some measure of student loan forgiveness to even even out this injustice that was perpetuated on many times young young students, 17, 18, 19 years old uh, to take out almost one hundred thousand dollars worth of loans um, without any sort of real due process. Right. So right. there's 
there's problems within the whole system. So the, um, I have, so payments, it, no, go ahead, Aaron. I'm sorry. Payments will resume in, in June as of now. Okay. Um, the process in the, in the courts will determine the legality of this forgiveness program and what may need to happen, you know, uh, if it does go to the Supreme Court, uh, <laughs> we see the uh, politic the political nature of that body, and it'll be interesting to see um, how many justices will be deciding that at that time. But um, that's that's an issue for another day. Um, yeah, people technically won't have to start paying under the current law and current extension by the Biden administration. I believe it's sixty days after the June deadline, so that would be around August. They say there will be no other extensions, but I think this is such a hot-button issue and impacts so many families. If for some reason this loan forgiveness is struck down, I think the Democrats will have to go back to the drawing board and see what other policy pieces they can put into place to fulfill that campaign promise. Yeah, absolutely. And that was my thought exactly, Erin. If this does go to the Supreme Court, of course, we have a 6-3 to conservative majority that it will likely be struck down. Um, But... I guess there's just so un- so much uncertainty, and I know we can't put the cart before the horse, but there's just so much uncertainty on people who have already started to get their loans forgiven and their their debt forgiven, I should say, you know, and, and then all of a sudden it's kind of like, hey, well, you know what? Here, kind of dangling out that little that little low hanging fruit to you. Hey, this is available for you now, and then boom, it all goes away. And that's really difficult for folks, right? Yeah, it is. <laughs> you know, um, when I, when I talk to friends who are um, who, like I, who received Pell grants, for example, mm-hmm. that are first generation college students that um, you know are doing well in in their lives, but still, you know, considering what what their budget looks like, as as every family should, and um, the the message that we received when that student loan forgiveness was was pushed through and announced people were thrilled we were finally getting getting some sort of relief and you know i think it goes to that bigger question of how are we funding our education in this country and who do we think deserves an education for an affordable cost um so i what my hope is is that all of this uncertainty since we're we're dealing with it anyway opens those bigger conversations about why college costs so much, why we have a system where we have to take out these massive loans and there's there's not a better way to do this. How are we how are we financing our our uh, public education system and preparing people to not only attend college, but make sure that they finish. Right. So um I hope that that broader conversation can create some additional solutions and that will spur on some additional innovation to help struggling families who are going to work every day, who are following through on um, on their commitment and want to pay off these loans. That's the thing. I, I think there's a framing in certain media circles that, that basically says people just want, want a free deal. It's like, right. no, people, people want to pay these loans off. But what has happened is you take out a $50,000 loan for your whole education. Now you're paying upwards of 150000 Right. How, how, how are you telling an 18-year-old um, the nuances and the realities of that, right? So the, the system is broken. We have to find other solutions. We have to innovate to fund our current students who are heading into college. Um, you know, I have a stepdaughter who's a, applying to, to many of these, these Ivy League and top tier schools. Yeah. And why, why are they so expensive? 
who do they leave out? Mm-hmm. Who, who isn't allowed to even apply because the system is um, so expensive, right? So I hope it brings a broader conversation, but it's just another example how we have to be very careful who we are appointing, electing, and um, approving of in our judicial system. And it's something that the Santita uh, Jackson and Friends show talks about all the time is the neutrality and the professional nature of our judicial system on all levels, whether that's local, state, state Supreme Court, um, or up onto the federal level, whether that's appellate, whether that's the Supreme Court. And those roles are very important. Those people, as we talked about with the Safety Act, are deciding whether or not... uh, who stays in jail, right? Mm-hmm. My call to action, as I know Santita does all the time, is make sure you understand who your local judges are. Yes. Make sure you're researching them when you're voting for them on not just the Bar Association, but there's many other organizations focused on social justice and the rule of law, <laughs> the actual rule of law, and not politicizing either way, right? We need people that are jurists, that understand the importance of this role and are understand that these legal decisions also have policy implications, right? This decision impacts millions of folks who are, are waiting uh, patiently to decide if they can buy a home, mm-hmm. if they can send their own kids to college. These are, these are important things. And um, I hope it brings a broader conversation. And thank you for bringing it up today. It's, it's crucial that that we we talk about it. Absolutely. You know, and and I have one more question for you. I'm glad you talk about the judges and the impartiality because that is the most important thing. Of course, on the ballot, you're voting for your elected officials, your governor, your secretary of state, et cetera, attorney general. But you're right, Aaron. I maybe I'm just a, you know, a, a, a journalism geek, but I always just every time the judges come up, you have to pull up. There's there's always different websites geared toward, you know, um, judges who are favorable for women's issues, minority issues, um, legislative aid, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and you can go and do all the research. And it just blows my mind that we're in this the age of, you know, the Internet's <laughs> and, and nobody does all of the research and looks it looks to the judges and see how they vote. And it's never been easier to vote. You know, you vote by mail. I've voted by mail now the past two elections. And it gives me time to do all my research and look into these things and the questions that that you're posing, too. Well, and thank you for the the vote by mail pitch. I think that is so, so important. Yes. That pressure off of you. Right. And for us in Illinois, um, I know it's similar in many states. When you're standing there at the voting machine and you have this long list of 50 some judges sometimes, right? you're trying to be quick. You don't want to hold up the line. You, you get nervous. You forget somebody that maybe, you know, you had on a list. Um, so voting by mail is I'm a big proponent of that. They have um, I've done, done the same thing. And while it's, you may not get an I voted sticker, you you have the peace of mind knowing that you can have your your list you can look things up if you um uh didn't do your research ahead of time you can do it in real time and make sure that these are judges that also are um deciding cases with empathy right right? absolutely Um, in law school you get the experience of seeing all different kinds of court family court um you know uh different places where these judges are just making big decisions about whether people have to pay off debts or people get custody of their children and these are our these are the decisions that change our lives and they're important ones. And um, I think sometimes we like to forget that because um, 
we like to think of the system as, as something that's kind of far away from us. But these these positions are, are really important. And I also encourage it's time of year where people are doing candidate trainings. If you are an attorney that is interested in social justice and wants to make your community better, you should think about running for judge. Absolutely. We need a bigger pool of, of folks. We need different generations of people that are from different backgrounds that have that experience in life that puts you in the shoes of another human being and can let you make those life-changing decisions from a central point of justice. Right. And absolutely. I'm, I'm hoping we, we see some of those people jump into the arena. Me too. Aaron, I can't thank you enough for your time. I love talking to you. I know Santita loves talking to you as well and all of our listeners. Thank you for your advice and uh, just breaking everything down for us. Love talking to you, Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to talk with you today. You too. That's attorney Aaron Connolly on the Santita Jackson Show. I'm Andrea Darlis in for Santita today. After the news break, we'll talk to attorney Robert Patillo. And after 730, Justin Kaufman from Axios will be with us right here on Chicago's Progressive Talk WCPT. This is the Santita Jackson Show. Good morning. Happy December 1st to you. Andrea Darlis in for my friend Santita Jackson. She'll be back with you tomorrow. You're waking up to an 18-degree chilly temperature with a wind chill of 8 right now in the Chicagoland area. We're going to have partly sunny skies today, possibly up to a high of about 30 degrees. There is uh, some, some warmth in sight, though. We could see 50 by Sunday, so keep your fingers crossed. But again, a beautiful, crisp morning in Chicago. I'm so pleased to be ter- to be joined by our, our dear friends, uh, attorneys Robert Patillo and attorney Daryl Jones. Good morning, Robert. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning. Thank you. Good morning, Andrea. It's so I'm I'm so happy. I, I said to Aaron before I I love when I have when I fill in for Santita because I get to speak with all of you and uh, you break everything down for us so beautifully. We were talking with Aaron a little bit before about the Safety Act and I wanted both of you to weigh in on that as well. The General Assembly is going to make these changes to the Safety Act today. It eliminates cash bail. It takes effect January first. Uh, they've been talking about this during the special session, this veto session for the past day and a half. They're going to make a changes to it about a. Three 300-page amendment that's going to be added to it, and they are confident. Uh, Speaker Welch says it will pass through the Senate and the House both by midnight tonight, and the governor will sign this. This will become law on January 1st. So I wanted both of you to weigh in. Robert, why don't we start with you on the changes to the Safety Act and what this is going to mean for all of us here in Illinois? Uh, well, I think a big part of it is going to be this question of um, bail reform that we've seen happen nationwide uh, in, in major cities because um, the way I like to describe it with my clients is that getting arrested often is like getting abducted by aliens. Um, nobody really knows where you're at for the first 24 to 48 hours sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if you if it's the end of the month, your bills are due and uh, nobody knows. If you don't get bond at that, uh, that first hearing, you might be missing from work completely unexplained, nobody calling your job, no call, no show uh, for a week. 
have had clients where they've uh, had all the charges against them dismissed after a couple weeks of going through the system, you know, the mistaken identity, something along those lines, but by then their life is already ruined. Right. It's taking years to recover uh, from simply disappearing from society from two w- for two weeks. Uh, and so it's crucially important that we understand that only the most uh, heinous offenses um, should require a cash bond, because in reality, what you're uh, what you're doing is turning this into a fundraiser for municip- municipalities. That you're taking people who are at the bottom of the economy, often the the poor, the uh, less well connected. You're putting them in custody. You're forcing their families to go to bail bondsmen to put their uh, houses up for. Uh, for Hawk put to put their uh, vehicles to sign off on grandma um, grandma's 401k uh, loan in order just to get somebody out of custody. And then even if the uh, uh, if the charges are dismissed, well, now they have a uh, charge they have to pay back as a family that negatively impacts individuals. So anything that reduces the amount of cash bail is going to be a positive. I know Republicans like to fear monger mm-hmm. this and turn it into, well, you're being soft on crime. Right. Uh, you're going to let the criminals run amok at XYZ. If you have to violate people's constitutional rights in order to have a safe society, then your society is broken in the first place because we're talking about pretrial detainees, individuals who have not been convicted of any crime, or at least not for this offense. Uh, and the the concept that you just simply hold them in custody uh, as almost a, a minority report style, or minority report style um, precognition, where you're just keeping them there to keep them from committing any other crimes, just is not how a free society works. So uh, anything that works towards the goal of reducing our prison population to reduces the imprint uh, of our criminal justice system on the individual does not see um, the worst day of people's lives as a fundraiser from the city is going to be a positive, but of course we uh, talked about and discredited by portion of society. Absolutely. Robert Darrell, I want you to to weigh in on this as well, and I'm glad, Robert, that you mentioned uh, the the fear-mongering, because we we talked about that briefly with Aaron, too, you know, these these crazy and terrible campaign ads that were out and and murders being released in the street. It's it's just simply not true. So I'm I'm glad you alleviated that fear. Daryl, why don't you weigh in on this as well? Yeah, you know, uh, Andrea, Robert is is right on point. And and sometimes you just got to put this, you know, where the goods can get it. One of the things that that happens with with the cash bail system is that oftentimes you have cities and jurisdictions that will, you know, want people removed from the streets for various reasons. They want to call the police. It might be a simple trespassing charge. It might be a loitering charge. Mm-hmm. It might be a very, very minor uh, drug-type uh, uh, related offense. And they then end up having a, a bond, a cash bond that they need to post that they're too poor to be able to reach. And so they sit in jail awaiting a trial date for what may be, you know, $100 that they, that, you know, they simply don't have to put out. And it's just wrong to have someone sitting in jail pre-trial. They haven't been proven guilty. They haven't had their day in court. But because they cannot come up with the seventy-five, a hundred, two hundred dollars, or whatever the uh, the amount may be to be able to get out, they're forced to sit in a jail and wait. You know, in uh, in Maryland, like I, I I do a lot of criminal defense work uh, in parts of Maryland when there were going to be major festivals that occurred, the uh, the, the police would come through and they would do a sweep. And they would uh, have people arrested, you know, people that were homeless, arrested for the trespassing charges, arrested for related offenses, uh, bogan, uh, vagabond, loitering, that kind of stuff. 
They would give them a small payout, figure they'll be out, be out. They just need to clear the area for whatever the festival was that was going on. Yeah. Well, they couldn't afford. They couldn't, mm-hmm. afford, they couldn't afford the bails, and so they end up sitting there. And that's a real part, I think, of the problem uh, with that cash bail system. And again, as Robert has indicated, yeah, you know, the more severe uh, cases, you know, it, it it doesn't affect that. They're not being released on their on the murder cases. They're not being released like that uh, on the rape cases. So you know, uh, the whole system is designed against people without money, which is the problem because we need to be certain that this is a system that isn't based. On, uh, on money, but it's based on whether or not the person's going to appear in court when they're directed to do so. So that, that is what I see uh, in my analysis when I start dealing with that, uh, that cash bail system. Absolutely. And I want you both to explain, too, the, when it says it's up to the judge's discretion, is that how it currently is, or is this how it's going to be now? Robert, why don't you take that? Uh, well, that's the way that it's going to be once this passes, that okay. we will give more discretion to judges. Um, because kind of the, the the first infant step towards this uh, was the uh, non-recognizance bond uh, or the sign-on bond that you can have in many jurisdictions. And it very much became a two-tiered system, that the questions that were used in order for someone to have a sign-on bond, which would be the opposite of cash bail, um, unfairly skewed towards people who are of high socioeconomic means, uh, and also to non-minority individuals. I'll give you an example. Uh, When I used to do bond hearings on a a daily basis, uh, the first question that you would uh, do during your discussion with the judge will say, well, this individual is a uh, homeowner in the area. Uh, He is not a flight risk because he's a family man. He owns property. He owns a business uh, here, etc., and so these are all things that you would use to help your a client get a sign on bond. But at the same time, these are all the factors that are unfairly skewed towards people of a higher socioeconomic level. That when you're poor, you probably don't own property in the jurisdiction. Um, you you may not um, be a quote unquote family man or um, uh, or own businesses there that give you substantial ties to the community that ensure you will return. Uh, and it became a a prospect where uh, rich people use the uh, sign-on system that was meant to help poor people to get out of jail, and poor people still ended up uh, staying in custody and requiring a cash bond in order to get out. So we have to continue reforming the system, understanding the negative externalities that are associated with it. Uh, The hardest thing in American society is to get things done for poor people because don't nobody care about poor people in America. But this is a good step in the right direction of working towards freedom and equality, particularly in our criminal justice system. And also, I want to ask uh, you both about this, too. Some other tweaks to the law will include clarification on how police can arrest and deal with trespassers. How will that change and what will that mean, Daryl? Yeah, I mean, what will happen there is that when folks are uh, when the police are dealing with the trespassers, uh, they'll be able to just give a citation and release, not necessarily put uh, place them under arrest and put them in a position where they'll have to go before a judge and have some type of bond uh, that will be set. So it will, you know, it tries to alleviate uh, that 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 uh, that system where you know the person that is under arrest then has to appear for a judge, has to go through the commissioner process to make a determination as to what amount of cash bail should be put in place uh, for the individual to be re- uh, released. Each step of the way, uh, what the bill does, each step of the way is to try to equal it out mm-hmm. so that people that are from the lower economic status uh, aren't, you know, in, uh, are not disparately impacted because they're poor and are being arrested for uh, relatively minor offenses. 
Right. And the same charges that many, in many cases, as those who can afford to pay the bail, many of those charges. We're talking to attorneys Daryl Jones and attorney Robert Patillo. I want to switch gears with you both, too, while I have you for another few minutes here talking about the Biden student debt relief policy. A second federal appeals court now has rejected the Biden administrations to put on hold a ruling that would block the student debt relief policy. And this was the fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals just ruled last night that it will not pause a ruling from a Texas judge who struck down that policy while the appeal of this ruling plays out. Basically, this sets the stage for the Justice Department to take the case to the Supreme Court. What does this mean for student debt, the student debt relief policy? That's the question on everybody's mind this morning. Uh, Robert, why don't we start with you to take this one? Uh, well, what it, what it means is that President Biden has found himself a wonderful issue to run on in 2024. Yeah. Because you've, you've already uh, issued the money out there, uh, told people they were going to get it. You get the follow-up email saying you've been approved for the student loan forgiveness. Um, the uh, downtrodden lower middle classes celebrate. And now the appeals courts are, uh, are roundly saying that the president doesn't have the authority to do so. And even if this goes to the Supreme Court, the Trump Supreme Court, that has had the history majority, because remember, it's not just a Republican Supreme Court, it's a Trump Supreme Court, are, of course, going to strike it down, yeah. which means that legislatively it's going to have to get passed by Congress. Um, so Biden and the Democrats have a campaign issue going into 2024. Basically saying that if you give us a majority in the House, if you give us uh, a bigger majority in the Senate, then we can pass full student loan forgiveness. Uh, that will not be struck down by the court, that will have the instruction of the Supreme Court, and that's the only way we can get across the finish line. We tried doing it through executive order. Um, the president made a promise. He attempted to fulfill it. He's being blocked by Trump-era judges um, who are trying to uh, maintain control of the co- uh, country. And I think it's a great campaign issue for 2024. Now, in the short term, I think he's going to have to continue issuing, issuing these emergency extensions um, because nobody's going to start paying back their loans at a time where they believe that in a year the uh, the loans will be forgiven. I, I think you're going to see a record number of people applying for forbearance or simply just being scoff laws and not paying it, hoping that uh, in, a, in 2024 or 2025 that will be canceled. And I think this is the, uh, a, a bumper time that if enough people stop well, paying it, that the student loan industry itself is going to have to reform uh, from the literally money-printing apparatus that it's been for the last 40 years into something more similar to what it was intended to be. Mm-hmm. About 26 million people had applied for student loan relief prior to the recent court decisions. 16 million of those had already been approved. Daryl, I want you to weigh in on this as well. Weigh in on this, too. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting, Andrea, because uh, you, know, you have all these people that have been approved. They're, they're waiting and thinking that, you know, that, that their loan debt forgiveness is going to be in place. And so it creates a lot of confusion for them because you're assuming now that they're going to be following all that, that's going on. So it's creating a lot of confusion in that way. But one of the things that uh, that Robert said that I think is, is right on uh, with regards to what it does for setting up uh, the uh, the election in 2024 is that you have you now have a country that's watching the Supreme Court uh, that's saying you know we're going to say no uh, to uh, to women's rights to abortion to Dobbs and the Dobbs decision right Roe versus Wade 
We have a Supreme Court that's going to be saying no uh, to affirmative action in, in education. We have a Supreme Court and, and a party, really, that's saying no to educational issues and now saying no to, to the student debt relief issue. So you have all of this stuff that's being set up yeah. and, and you, you know, to the degree that you then have a president who's, who's going to constantly say, I'm going to continue to extend the student debt relief until we get to the point of having a, a Supreme Court that's on board with helping out our young folks in America. You're really setting the stage perfectly for, you know, for the young folks to come out and vote against that Supreme Court, because they're the ones that are most affected by the Dobbs decision. Yep. They're the ones that are most affected by the environmental decision. They're the ones that are most affected by the education decision, and they are the ones that are going to be most affected by the student debt decision. So, you know, for, for a party that may be trying to reach young people, it's doing everything it can to shoot itself in the foot, and that's to the benefit of the Democratic Party. Boar, you, you couldn't have said it any better than that, Daryl, because, you know, as these rulings continue to come down, starting with uh, Dobbs and, and, and these different rulings are not, that are now being affected by this right-leaning court, you know, I said the same thing. There's, there's just no foresight here. You're not, you're not, they're not looking ahead to what the implications and, and who's being affected by this, namely, as you just pointed out, Daryl, the young people of this country. And I'm glad you brought up uh, affirmative action because I want to briefly discuss that as long as I have you both, too. Uh, this, the conservative Supreme Court has indicated that they're willing to end the explicit consideration of race in college admissions, and this could be as early as next year. So why don't we talk a little bit about that? Robert, we'll start with you. Will this? Do you do you see this happening? And and again, how this is just going to be a major game changer when it comes to college admissions now going forward. If this does in fact happen, well, this absolutely will happen, and I think that it will backfire on Republicans um, as spectacularly as the Dobbs decision backfired on Republicans. Yeah, because if you, uh, this is very much that situation where a dog chases a car. Um, but has no idea what to do when they catch it. Right. Uh, so Republicans talked for 40 years about wanting to repeal Roe versus Wade. They got their repeal and then had no, no idea what to do with it. Uh, now they're going to get their repeal of affirmative action college admissions, and what happened with enough time that that fall class of 2023 and um, that spring class of 2024 will be impacted by it. And I think when you start seeing uh, white women being disproportionately um, negatively impacted by the affirmative action decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you start seeing Asian Americans being negatively impacted by the affirmative action decision, we start seeing LGBTQ um, students being negatively impacted by it. All of a sudden, they'll realize, well, we are going to have to legislatively change this. And for young voters in particular, uh, I think that this is uh, probably the worst thing the GOP could have done because, again, it gives Democrats a clear uh, contrast point and a clear campaign issue. Uh, just uh, being able to say in 2024, election, look, if you want this codified in the law, if you believe in diversity in education, if you believe that uh, there should not be a paywall and not a barrier stopping minorities and women and uh, LGBTQ students uh, from participating in our democracy, then you have to vote Democrat. I'm not quite sure what the Republican response to that will be. Um, this is one of those things where other than the most white supremacist to white supremacist, I don't see where this gains Republican votes and simply makes them look more and more more like the extreme right-wing party uh, that they've slowly become. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Robert. Thank you, Robert. Daryl, do you want to weigh in on this as well, too, please? Oh, no. I, I think that Robert's 100% uh, on point. And I can tell you, you know, I'm on the ground right now in Georgia for the runoff election. Yeah, I know. Yeah. We're, we're working directly with young voters that are here. And what we're hearing about what's driving them to the polls, 
what's driving them to the polls is Dobbs. What's driving yep. them to the polls is the lack of diversity. What's driving them to the polls is the student debt reduction. You know, we're on the campus of, uh, of Morehouse. We'll be on the campus of Albany State. And what we're hearing is about the student debt, uh, uh, you know, the, the student debt reduction act and, and what's being held up. So, you know, it, it, it's not a fairy tale to say that this is what we think or is going to happen with the young voters. This is what's happening, and this is their concern. And, there's, you know, and of course, you know, there's all police reform that's pushing them as well. But the one thing that is consistent is that the young folk today are dialed in to the politics of today, and they're really, ready, willing, and, and able, and are going to the polls to vote. Those first two days of early voting here in Georgia, what was it, Robert? Some 64% were young voters. Yeah. These are young voters that are coming out. So, Andrea, it's, it's very real. And, and I think that this combination of, of issues that we've laid out is what we mean when we say that democracy is going to be on the ballot in 2024. Absolutely. I'm glad you brought this up, too, because we just have a few minutes left, but I want you to weigh in, too, both of you. I know you're on the ground there, too, Daryl, like you said, uh, in Georgia. This runoff... Uh, will absolutely test the saying power of abortion in American elections. And and by the way, before you both weigh in, NBC exit polls are showing that 60 percent of Georgia voters believe abortion should be legal. Well, 37 percent said it should be illegal. So there you go right there. That that could be your answer. Robert, do you want to have final thoughts on this, too? Uh, absolutely. I think that what well, what we're seeing is a sea change in American politics, uh, where many people do not no longer follow the 1980s kind of playbook on when it comes to many of these social issues. Yeah. Uh, society has changed. Generations have changed. Um, the fact that the uh, young whippersnappers from Gen X are now the, the older generation uh, shows that we're not going to have as conservative of policies, and Republicans have had a hard time keeping up with that. Uh, amazingly, the party of old white men like John McCain, Bob Dole, etc., uh, have not been good at keeping up with the times. I think that's going to hurt them ultimately because, as Lindsey Graham said, they're not making old white men fast enough to keep the Republican Party afloat, and they've not been willing, willing to change and update with the times. Mm-hmm. Daryl? Well, no, I mean, Robert, again, is right in on it. You know, the whole thing, I think, is going to come down to uh, the young voters. And we're going to have the young voters, and we're going to have our seniors that are coming out in record numbers. And you know, they've made it more difficult for seniors to vote. So what are they doing? So they're, you know, so we're working on ways to be certain that seniors are transported to the polls and have that opportunity to vote. So I think that's all going to weigh against those that are trying to suppress the rights of the young, the rights of the of voters of color to be able to exercise that right. And I think you're going to see them continuing to come out in numbers in 2024. Daryl Jones, Robert Patillo, I can't thank you enough for your expertise and your time today and breaking everything down for all of us. Uh, we'll see what happens, right? We'll, we'll, we'll do this again. Thanks so much, Andy. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Again, attorneys Daryl Jones, Robert Patillo have such a wonderful way of breaking everything down for us. It is 18 degrees right now. We'll have partly sunny skies today here in the Chicago area, going up to only a high of about 30 degrees. After the news break, we'll talk to my friend Justin Kaufman from Axios. Wonderful column today. If you don't subscribe to the Axios newsletter, you need to. We're going to talk property taxes with Justin right after this. Why are your property tax bills so high? The Cook County Treasurer's Office released a scathing report just this morning explaining why property tax bills have gone through the roof. Justin will join me after this. It's Andrea Darlis in for Santita Jackson today on Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT.
This is the Santita Jackson Show. It's December 1st in Chicago, and it feels like it, too. 18 degrees right now, going up to a high of 36 degrees. We will see the sun, but we continue our conversation. Andrea Darlis in for Santita today. Why are your why are your property tax bills so high? I'm sure we uh, all receive these late, obviously. Opened up, opened them up or checked them out online and thought, oh, my God, and had major sticker shock. My good friend Justin Kaufman and uh, my other good friend Monica Eng write the Axios newsletter. Justin is a Chicago treasury, covers Chicago news. He's been doing it for years. And so, Justin, I thought, come on the air with me and let's talk about our property tax bills. First and foremost, this is insane. How fun. Is it? That's where we're at in our relationship. We just get on the phone. I know. Uh, I, I, t- I text you at 6 o'clock in the morning and say, hey, I'm in for Santita today. Hop on the air. Let's talk property tax bills. And us being like the, the news nerds that we are, yeah, <laughs> you said yes. What a, what, a, what a weird year it's been for property tax bills. This is oh, wow. a property tax bill because of uh, technical glitches and, and political infighting in, in the Cook County offices of, of the Assessor's Office, the Board of Review, and now the Treasurer's Office. Yeah, the Cook County Treasurer's Office put out a, a pretty scathing report this morning that explained what's happening with the tax bills, what 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 Chicago is getting hit the hardest. Uh, the report says the Chicago homeowners, the, the median tax bill went up almost 8% since 2020. And and the problem is is that the assessor had promised that there was going to be a change in the way we did this and, and both how he ran in 2018 and ran for re-election in 2022 that uh, you would see from uh, Chicago less of a tax burden on homeowners and more shifted to downtown businesses. Well, that isn't the case, and there's a lot of factors why, but right now it seems the burden is strictly still on the homeowner uh, to the tune of, I think it's close to 60%. So uh, not not great news from this report that came from the Treasurer's office this morning, but it does break down which neighborhood got hit the hardest, which neighborhood uh, is actually seeing decreases in their tax bill, along with some other interesting numbers. Let's talk about some of those numbers, Justin. Who got hit the hardest and who actually benefited sure. from this, this crazy tax year? Sure. Well, pre- predominantly Latino wards are the wards that got hit the hardest, according to this report. So you're talking about neighborhoods like Tilson, mm-hmm. uh, also Hermosa on the on near northwest side, also uh, Avondale, which is uh, an up-and-coming neighborhood, uh, a gentrified neighborhood that uh, I think Time Out called one of the best in the world. Yeah, yeah. Those neighborhoods are very hard. They're the ones that, I mean, you're seeing in the lower west side, which is Tilson and heart of Chicago, 45% tax increases. You're also seeing a huge increase in Humboldt Park. Uh, you can talk about some of the affluent neighborhoods along the lakefront. They got hit uh, pretty hard, anywhere between 10 and 20%. Where you see that, that, that it actually decreased is predominantly African-American wards uh, on the south and west side. Garfield Park specifically was probably the, the neighborhood that got hit the least. Um, so you see that there's a there's a disparity. Now, when you, when you ask the or in the, or in the report, when, when the, the treasurer points out there's no rhyme or reason to it. And I'm sure that, you know, if you talk to other people in the Cook County offices, they would say they'd have their reasons why some are higher and some are lower. But you know, she points out, she says, you know, there's there's inequities in the system and we need to straighten it out now. 
And and that seems to be the problem because I think the concept was is that we were kind of and, and correct me if I'm wrong. You've been around these years that that it was it was kind of a, a process that was behind closed doors that uh, yeah. the Marios and the Chicago Machine were doing what they wanted to do and we didn't know anything about it. And we had you know uh, politicians run to change that. And here we are in 2022, and the process again seems to be shrouded in mystery. And there's no sort of, there's a head scratch on why uh, some places are up and some places are down. And it's confusing the taxpayer. Yeah, it's crazy, Justin. And, and you really, you and Monica really did a wonderful job of breaking this all down kind of from the start. You know, property taxes yeah. are always, unfortunately, I mean, you and I are both Chicago residents. They're always going to go up. We're always going to have a little bit of a sticker shop. But this was just absolutely yeah. insane. And, and you guys did a really nice job of breaking down the the process, you know, starting with the assessor in Fritz Kage's office and then going to the board of review and then the treasurer's office. And now it's just interesting to me. And, you know, I love Maria Pappas, but now it's interesting to me that the treasurer's office is saying, whoa, 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 this is, you know, this is crazy. And issuing this review, this scathing review. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, I've never seen it before in Cook County politics um, where you've had this sort of infighting from from, you know, office to office. But it, it all starts earlier in the year where you had uh, these bills were supposed to be in our, our you know, supposed to be in our mailbox in August, right? September, and and this has been pushed back uh, past. Uh, you know, obviously we're getting close to the end of the year here, and and there's going to be the first installment of 2021 taxes come up in February and March. So there's it's coming right around the corner. So there's a lot of questions and, and you know frustrations around why is there ever a delay in your property tax bill? That's one. And that and, and you talk to the assessor's office, and they blame it on the Board of Review. You talk to the Board of Review, they blame it on the assessor's office. <laughs> the Cook County Treasurer getting involved here. I, I do think that there's some interesting things that came out of this report that aren't necessarily finger-pointing back and forth at the different offices. There's more finger-pointing to the state of Illinois, to yeah. Springfield, which I have to say I didn't recognize this, and as a reporter, I, you know, these are things you got to pay attention to, but the uh, there is a law that got passed, and it's the first time it's actually implemented in this tax season. That essentially is is a I don't know what you call it, but it was passed to essentially have local governments recapture any money. So any money that you go in and you uh, appeal your property taxes, we all do it, right? Uh, whether it's through your association or whether if you got a high price lawyer, whatever it might be, you're trying to get these. And, and downtown businesses are really great at this. You go in, you get the assessment, you get the tax bill, you go in, you appeal it, and you get the, the board of review says, yes, your tax should be lower. The new law says that instead that, that the state or the, the local government is uh, is due the money that was first uh, first set, meaning not the appeal money, but was first set. So the disparity there gets paid out not by the downtown building that got re- reassessed, but by the rest of the homeowners and the building owners. So, wow. as Rhea Pappas points out, that is just every year going to be an annual tax increase. So if you get, you have a tax bill that's $5,000 and you go in and the Board of Review says, no, it's 3000 Cook County gets 5000 They're just going to get it some other way. That's the new law, and that's the part that is confusing and head-scratching for taxpayers because – where does that money come from? It comes, it, it, it goes to the Cook County or to the, the governing bodies on the backs of everybody else. And that is kind of startling to think about because then you're like, okay, well, 
I thought that's what we were trying to avoid, that if the Cook County, if, if downtown buildings are getting reassessed, that doesn't go on the backs of homeowners. But it seems like the state of Illinois in Springfield did exactly that. Yeah, Justin, is this the, the law that you that you were referring to, that this allows local governments to recapture money from the yeah. public that it refunded to them? So it's kind of like you're being, yeah. you win you get win money back, but then you're being taxed on it. So it's like a double tax almost. Yeah, but if Andrea win, if you win, I lose. <laughs> right. Essentially what's happening. So yeah. it just it's essentially what happens is they get the money regardless and it gets and essentially everybody else has to pay that extra 2000 that you reappealed out. Yeah, it does seem just so random. It's kind of like, you know, when we talked about just the different wards, Justin, you know, over the years, you and I have talked about this. It's like taking a shard of, like a, a pane of glass, dropping it, and that all the shards, you know, now comprise a new ward. You know, far north side, far south side, same ward, or whatever it might be. And and, and it's, this is, it, they could apply to the uh, the congressional districts, too. But that's what it looks like, too. And, and you and Monica do such a nice job of, of you know, showing which wards suffered the most, which benefited actually, which I, I'm really surprised that actually some of the, some wards did benefit from this recent and bill. But know, it's just, I, yeah, I will say this, Andrea. That I think you know beyond the, the political part of this, where it seems like all the the the, the different offices are finger pointing at each other. This is part of the process of reform. At a, at a certain point, you've got to break what was done before, and you have to change it up. You need to say people who are overtaxed are, are going to get somewhat of a, of a reprieve. People who were undertaxed might get taxed more. It's just this concept that the assessor had about free and uh, or fair uh, assessments and fair uh, property tax bills. So it's not surprising that some are going to be going down and some are going to be going up. Right. I just think that the you know we get to a certain point where some of that finger pointing as they're as they're trying to break some eggs to to to, to make a new omelet uh, is is a little bit more is a little messier than we thought it was going to be. Yeah, and I did find it interesting too that these came out after the election. You know, I think there was just a, a smattering of. Oh, they're late. Oh, wow. We get them, you know, three days after or, you know, the 14th. So what was a week after the election? It was right after the election. Yeah. Republicans, you know, right before the election, because Cook County Democrats, you know, run the show. Uh, uh, they were crying foul. And, and you know, I talked to the assessor's office. And they said there's just absolutely no truth to that. That's a yeah. that's conspiracy theory. But, you know, it is hard as a taxpayer to be like, wow, the week after I voted for people, I'm getting, you know, a huge right. increase in my bill. I, my bill personally is 20 percent higher. Yeah, mine was about 15 percent higher. Same thing. Yeah. Yeah. Monica's bill, and she lives in Lakeview, was, was 71 percent higher. I s- and, couldn't and believe that. that. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's uh, again. I I'm not, you know. She will say the same thing. I mean, you get to a certain point where you're like, okay, well, this is about you know assessing and taxing the value of a home. So it is possible since the last time she was, whenever that was, I think it was 2019. Um, you know that that her home has gone up or my home's gone up or you know just the, the idea. That's the other thing that the that uh, the treasurer's office points out is that really where this comes from is during COVID. Uh, the assessor's office uh, did an eight to twelve percent decrease in assessments to help people out. Right. So when they did the assessments in twenty twenty, they were saying, okay, for we're going to we're going to we're going to downgrade. We all got to downgrade on our taxes. But what happened is because the market didn't change, and there was I, there was an I guess an assumption that the market would level off. It didn't. It went sky high. That's when you have the board of reviews reappealing or, or reassessing. 
saying, oh, no, this is more. And that's uh, where this uh, treasurer's report says that you're going to see the disparity from what you thought you were going to be taxed and what you were. A lot of people wanting to weigh in. 773-763-9278. Let's go to Shapurl talking about property taxes with Justin Kaufman from Axios. Hi, Shapurl. How are you? Hi, Andrea. Thank you so much for taking my call. Uh, listen, I know that you guys are primarily talking about the city of Chicago, but the suburbs of Chicago have been hit extremely hard. Yeah. Uh, I stay in Cicero, and uh, we have seen probably like a 80% uh, hike in our property taxes. So my personal mortgage went up by $900. Wow. And so it is like crazy. And it would be different if the resources, what they say the property taxes go for, which is for the schools and the libraries, if we actually got those resources and we see it actually working. But what we're seeing is that there's no improvement, at least I know in Cicero, there's no improvement in our schools or our libraries or our resources that are around where the property taxes are supposed to benefit. And so right now, it's like you know, I think that the whole gentrification, because Cicero is right like 15 minutes away from downtown, mm-hmm. everything that's like 15 to 20 minutes away outside of the city uh, center, that they're raising these prices so that that way people will be forced to sell and these, uh, these actual uh, investors can come and scoop up all these properties and then everything will level out. And so it, I think the main goal is for everybody to get uh, all the black and brown people to get out of the city or close to the city and push them either in other states or in further su- suburbs. So mm-hmm. that's what's happening. That's the real truth of it. Hey, Shapiro, thank you so yeah. much for the call. Always love talking to you. She's right, Justin. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, and, and, you know, this is a, a harbinger. When you look at the, you know, the way this breaks down, Cook County, does their taxes uh, by area. So I, I think it was in 2020, it was the, the Northern Cook County, then they did Southern Cook County, and now they did the city of Chicago. So, it, it, you know, everyone's, a lot of people like uh, your caller was talking about Cicero, that has been already assessed at some point, you know, uh, the last time they did it last year, whenever it was. The city, and but, but she makes a great point that the a lot of this is because the municipalities are asking for the maximum allotment of what they can from the tax. Right. So uh, CPS, for instance, Chicago Public Schools, raised its tax levy by $114 million. The city got a new $94 million. There's also an extra $141 million that went to the, TIF, the tax increment financing district. So you can see that, that it's, not, it's not necessarily just your assessment. It's what all of the different municipalities that are part of the taxing body want. They want the maximum. That probably tells you a lot of where we're at in our economy. They need all the cash. <laughs> so, you know, what happens is CPS can, can say, I can, they can say, defer and say, we don't want to take the maximum allotment. But this time around, they did. So did the city. So did the tax increment financing district. So you see that there's just all this money that is being asked by these municipalities. So it's going to be coming out of taxpayers' wallets. Yeah. As Maria Papa said, there's inequities in this system, and we need to straighten it out. And they absolutely do. Because as Shapiro mentioned, Cicero, I know Oak Lawn went up, Orland Park went up. And, you know, you you mentioned these, you know, far south suburban and and far uh, west suburban communities. But, yeah, they're all part of Cook County, and they're getting hit, too. And here's the problem. Here's the problem at the end of the day, and I yeah. know your listeners appreciate this, is that, that, that there's, there's just enough, there's not enough pie to go around. So if you've got the south suburbs that have been just completely taxed to the hilt 
for the last couple of years. Even even the Republican uh, Governor Bruce Rauner was trying to put uh, you know legislation in the Springfield saying you can't tax anymore. There's too much burden on property taxes in these suburbs. Yes. Well, when when a, when they reform and they say okay, we got to take that tax burden away. Unfortunately, it goes to other places, and that includes uh, whether, you know, like your caller just said in Cicero or downtown Chicago, where it might be. The question is, who's taking on this burden? And right now, it didn't change from downtown buildings to homeowners. Homeowners are continuing to take on the burden. Absolutely. We're talking to Axios' Justin Kaufman. Justin, you guys, you and Monica Ang do a wonderful, wonderful job on the Axios newsletter. It really, it, it's it's quick, it's informative, it gives you all the news that you need to do, to know for the day from uh, Chicago, the suburbs, and the state of Illinois. Give out the uh, the information, Justin, for how people sure, can subscribe. Axios Chicago. You can, you can subscribe to it. It's a daily free newsletter. We It's under a thousand words, so it's uh, less than a three-minute read every morning. And, uh, yeah, it's, you can go to Axios Chicago. I think you go to uh, just Google it, Axios Chicago. Axios Chicago, and sign up for it. I'm telling you, it's the first thing I read every morning. Before, actually, uh, and I won't text you every morning, Justin, but I love being with you. I love the opportunity yeah, no. to, to catch up with you. Before I let you go, I, I know I'm over my time with you, but I... And the newsletter's fun too. You do a lot of fun things. You you know you pick different foods and you this today you're focusing on uh, the best places to get Christmas trees, real trees in Chicago, which I'm a big proponent of, by the way. But I gotta give I gotta have you give a plug to the uh, the recent Final Four. You you do the um the elite the Sweet yeah. Sixteen, the Elite Eight, and the Final Four. Yeah. We kind of have fun with brackets and we take Chicago topics and and sort of play them out in a competition. This this month that we did Chicago downtown Chicago buildings architecture. So we did everything from Willis Tower to the Aqua Building to Marina Towers to uh, Tribune Tower. And uh, the winners, are I mean, who's, who's up for today is the last day of it. Uh, really, Chicago loves its classic uh, Art Deco, terracotta, 1920s, Roaring Twenties buildings because the two that won, and there's a lot of people voted for this, the two that are facing off are the Wrigley Building, which, of course, that iconic building uh, built, you know, by uh, by the, the Wrigley family in, in the 1920s versus the Carbide and Carbon Building, which is actually built by Daniel Burnham's sons uh, in, the, in the 20s as well. But both of those buildings on Michigan Avenue, about a block away from each other, are the last two standing. It's fun. It's just a tournament <laughs> you go through, and everyone gets the comments about which ones they're they're angry about <laughs> that didn't it's... make it to the final four. But those are the two that have been that that you know the Axel Chicago uh, reader voted on, and, and it's fun. It's playing out today. Tomorrow we'll announce the winner. Were you su- were you surprised by uh, any of the uh, by the uh, the championship buildings? I didn't. I didn't realize our love for the class for the twenties. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right. Smart made it to the final four, uh, and 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 trip tower as well. But there's a lot of nineteen twenties uh, architecture. I, I personally am more of a modern guy. I love the Aqua Building, Jeannie Gang's building. Oh, me too. I love Marina Towers. I think Marina Towers is probably one of the better. Uh, even the trip tower, which we both worked in, is, is is great. I mean, I was surprised to see the, both the Willis Tower and eight seventy five North Michigan, both Sears and Hancock, were not out in the first round. Yeah, completely. Surprising because they're iconic. I mean, I, mean, I would just think that Sears Tower would be in the final four just for its history and, and for what it means for a symbol in Chicago. But not, and, you know, and here's my favorite takeaway is that the Trump Tower, which I believe to be a majestic, beautiful building, that is one of the best uh, modern buildings of our time, did the poorest 
of all of them just got wiped off the face. I mean, not right. didn't even get five percent of the vote. Ninety-five. I forgot which. It was up against the merchandise mark, and it just got creamed. I'm like, that building needs a marketing overhaul because people did not vote on architecture; they voted on the name. Completely, <laughs> completely agree. Take the name off. I know they can. I know it's take grandfathered in. <laughs> take the yeah, take the, the top four. You're right. It's a beautiful building. If you just take the name off it, I think it might have done a little higher. But yeah, that was interesting to me too. That Trump didn't even get five percent of the vote. The building. I should say to Trump Tower didn't get five percent, but yeah, I feel, I feel the same way. I mean, I love these. I love our iconic buildings, Trump Tower. Um, I love yeah. the uh, the Smurf Stone. That's the building that is shaped yeah. like a diamond. You know, people call it the, the Diamond the Building. Center was in there. Uh, you had all these great buildings, and then people, you know, people get mad or, or at least argue about what buildings should be in the top ten, what buildings should be in the Sweet Sixteen. Because you got to pick sixteen. There's way more than sixteen. People were advocating for three eleven South Wacker. Uh, the Palm Olive building wasn't in there. Uh, the old Prudential building. There's a lot of buildings that didn't make the, the Sweet 16 that should have, uh, but you only got 16 slots, and it was interesting to see how it played out. Wrigley Building versus Carbine and Carbon today. The winner uh, will be announced tomorrow. Well, you are the best, Justin. I love talking to you again. Justin Kaufman from Axios. You and Monica Eng do a wonderful job. Thank you so much, Justin. Thanks, Andrew. Have a great one. It's Justin Coffin. Please subscribe to that newsletter. It's absolutely awesome. Um, it, it's great because they, they use maps and they break everything down in a way that you can easily understand everything, like we were talking about the property taxes. But it's a lot of fun, too. This week, as I said, in addition to the um, the brackets on the Chicago buildings and the architecture, uh, the Monica and Justin talk about where you can get the best Christmas trees. I don't know. Are you guys real tree enthusiasts? Henry, what do you like? Are you a real tree enthusiast or are you a... An aluminum tree. Do you put up a Christmas tree? Um, I don't, uh, but I love, love, love a real tree. Can't get over the, the fresh smell and everything. It, I think that sets the precedent for like the holiday season. I love it. I have um, some Jewish cousins, and they put up Christmas trees as well, and they call it the Hanukkah bush, but they've always put up a tree. When I lived in South Loop, I would call uh, the tree Santa. And it's just, you know, service in Chicago. They pick out your tree. You tell them what you want, like a nice fur or balsamic, whatever it is. And uh, balsam, sorry. Balsamic is be vinegar. But a balsam or a fur, uh, a spruce, whatever you like. And uh, he would deliver it, the tree Santa, on his little motorcycle to your house, which is pretty cool. Um, but now we put up a fake tree just because it's easier. You can store it in the box. takes up less space. And, you know. But I highly encourage you, if you do get a real tree... Absolutely. After the holidays, recycle it. The city has recycling places all set up. All one, the biggest one is in Grant Park. Uh, there's one on the north side here in Jeff Park. Um, but yeah, please recycle your trees and subscribe to the Axios newsletter. All right, Andre Darlis in for Santita Jackson. We just have a couple more minutes here. I'll give you some of the news headlines that we've been following for today. Take you through the rest of your day. It's going to be a cold one. Bundle up. Only a high of about 35 degrees today. It's 19 degrees right now. Uh, Five people dead in a murder-suicide in Buffalo Grove. Police are still investigating that as well. Um, This is uh, also today's December 1st. Be aware if you're in the city of those red, white, and blue signs that the parking ban is now in effect for Chicago Street. So if you see those red, white, and blue signs, don't park there. Even if there's no snow on the ground, you can get towed. Uh, This went into effect last night into today. It impacts about more than 100 miles of main streets throughout the city. These parking restrictions are in effect from 3 a.m. until 7 a.m. And as I said, 
safe. No parking is allowed, even where the signs are posted, where the signs are posted, even when there's no snow. Uh, if you've had your vehicles towed to the ban, it's a $150 towing fee in addition to a wonderful $60 ticket and the lovely icing on the cake, the $25 per day storage fee. I've had my car towed. It, it is absolutely not fun. I know better. I mean, I'm a life, I'm born and raised here. I'm a lifelong Chicago resident. Um, I feel sorry for tourists and people who don't realize that, hey, these rush hour and these parking bans are now in effect. And you end up going to the pound there on Lower Wacker to get your car, paying $1,000, whatever it is, if you accrue all the fees. And these poor folks who are visiting our city are like, I didn't know you couldn't park there. There's no snow on the ground. But just don't do it. If you um, if you can't find your car in Chicago this morning, you can go to chicagoshovels.org or call 311 and they will tell you where your car is at. And uh, I'll give you another weather forecast again. For the rest of the day, we'll see partly cloudy skies and a high of 36 degrees. It's Andrea Darlis in for Santita Jackson. Thank you so much to Santita for letting me uh, keep her chair warm today. Thanks to Matt and Mark and everybody here, Tim at WCPT. Henry Edwards, thank you so much for producing our show today. You're a great job. Aspiring musician and producer extraordinaire. Thank you so much to Reverend Vicki Johnson from St. Thomas Lutheran Church in Chicago. Thank you so much to uh, attorneys Robert Patillo, attorney Daryl Jones, and attorney Aaron Connolly, who we talked about the Safety Act, which, by the way, is going to pass probably by midnight tonight with the 300-page amendment. Do some reading on that and find out where that stands. Again, that is going to pass probably by midnight. So thanks to Aaron, to Robert, and to Daryl. And, of course, my good friend, Justin Kaufman and Monica Ang write the Axios newsletter. Thank you so much to Justin for taking some time out to talk property taxes today. Scathing report from Cook County Treasurer Maria Pappas on our property tax bills, which uh, have gone up significantly. You can read that online as well, cookcountytreasurer.org. Again, thank you so much to everybody. We'll see you next time. I'm Andrea Darlis in for Santita Jackson here on Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT.